If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest episode in our new series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. Hello and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two Prime Ministers that they believe achieved most during their time in Number 10. Today we'll be hearing from historian Charlotte Lydia Riley, whose second choice was Harold Wilson, whose 1960s Premiership came to embody that decade's progressive and modern outlook. Charlotte, we're here to talk about Harold Wilson. Um, For people who may not know, when was his time in office and what do you think makes him particularly great as a Prime Minister? So um, Harold Wilson was in office um, from 1964 until 1970, with two elections in that period, one in 1964 and one in 1966. Um, And then he was re-elected in 1974 and had a brief kind of second tenure as Prime Minister. Now, historians do tend to sort of gloss over that second tenure. um, (laughs) And I I probably will today when I'm talking about him. Um, It's very much a kind of uh, second act. And it's not really associated with what we think of as the kind of Wilson government and 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 for me when i'm talking about the wilson government i'm talking about this period in the 1960s um and it has become such an important sort of historical moment i think because it's so associated with a lot of social reforms which in turn gets so associated with this moment of the the sort of quote unquote swinging 60s um and it's all kind of tied up together as seeing wilson as someone who is either himself or certainly enables a really kind of progressive moment in british politics i think possibly because we're talking obviously very far from the other side of this revolution. He seems an unlikely figurehead for a period of sexual revolution, doesn't he? He does. Um, yeah, Harold Wilson in his Gannick's raincoat with his his um, his pipe and his walking holidays on the Isles of Scilly. Um, it does not strike you necessarily as a kind of uh, countercultural figure, but he but he is. And, and I think what's interesting here actually is that a lot of these reforms are are enabled by him having this this very pioneering Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins, who who was a, a fairly young Home Secretary, um, and in 1959 had published a book called The Case for Labour, um, which was a, a around the 1959 election, which which Labour had not had not won 
Um, but he'd, he'd sort of set out this this case for voting Labour and in the final chapter of it had dealt with all of these kind of social th- reforms he thought needed to happen. And he'd sort of set out this case for for what becomes known as the kind of permissive society in a way. But, he you know, he sets out the case for things like abortion law reform, uh, decriminalisation of homosexuality and, and also the abolition of the death penalty. He's written that stuff publicly. And so when Wilson appoints him as Home Secretary, he's you know, he's doing so with the knowledge that this is the sort of stuff that Jenkins is interested in. Can we trace the roots of this sort of reforming figure back to any episodes early in his life? Um, Wilson's early life is, is I think, quite interesting. He he is a sort of, kind of in, in many ways, kind of fits into a sort of type of history of the Labour Party. He's got his grammar school educated and then he goes to he, he goes to university, um, he goes to Oxford. And so he's he sort of has has that kind of that sort of trajectory of, of sort of social mobility, I guess, to, to a degree. Um, he'd been uh, very, very briefly an Oxford don or was very very briefly a kind of academic um and then gets appointed um and has a, a really stellar early political career actually um it gets gets into a kind of cabinet figure a cabinet position very very young i think one thing that we can kind of trace uh wilson's perhaps could at least could trace trace this kind of moment back to is is the kind of connection between his politics and his um sort of core moral and and, and religious beliefs um he's someone who often kind of sets himself being on the side of the of the vulnerable, the side of the people who have been marginalised. Um, and this is sort of internationally as well as domestically. He's very concerned around kind of global poverty, for example. Um, and I think possibly that leads him to being um, supportive of these kinds of social reforms, which we think of as, as being quite, you know, kind of, yeah, the sort of sexual revolution, but actually often about, about kind of making lives better for people who otherwise find themselves quite, quite marginalised within society. What was his route to Prime Minister and what challenges did he inherit when he first took office? He comes into being the leader of the Labour Party at a moment where the Labour Party is demonstrating its sort of historical tendency to towards infighting. Um, and he, he sort of emerges as, as, as the kind of leader of the Labour Party at a point where there's quite a lot of sort of different camps within the Labour Party and different kind of battles going on. In 1959, the Labour Party had thought that they would win the election and they hadn't and they had quite narrowly lost it and possibly because of a series of there were there's a couple couple of gaffes in the in the kind of campaign and this sort of thing that kind of undermine them but also the Labour Party found it hard against the Conservatives of a moment where the Conservatives are saying you've never had it so good in a period of kind of affluence Labour finds it hard to work out how to appeal to an electorate because you know their sort of selling point under and in the 1940s and 1950s the campaigns they had built had been very much around working classes of Britain need to vote for us in order to have their material lives improved. And so when the Conservatives are saying, actually, you're all doing pretty well, like, everyone's pretty comfortable in Britain, it's quite hard for Labour to build an electoral case. And so one of the reasons that Wilson, I think, is really interesting as a leader is because he positions the Labour Party, yes, still as a socialist party who cares about the working classes, but also as the party of the future. And so he, you know, very famously gives this white heat of technology speech where he talks about Labour needing to kind of, Labour will will sort of enable the country to take this step forward into modernity. Um, and it will do all sorts of things to do that. So things like the Open University, for example, fit into that, that idea that Labour needs to modernise. 
And this is partly about quality of life. You know, you, you will have a better life because labour modernising probably means you'll get like a fridge freezer and this sort of thing. But it, it's also about um, kind of selling a different image of Britain and the world to the electorate, which is far more successful, it turns out, than fighting, scrapping with the Conservatives about who can who can kind of get you a little bit more money in your pocket. Like Labour starts to talk in, in terms of these like big picture changes and, and the, the future of the nation and the future of the world and all of this sort of stuff and... It's, a, it's a, a more winning strategy. Do you think that taps into a desire of the population to look beyond the present and look into the future? I think so. I think the 60s is a really interesting moment for this. Again, because of maybe because of um, the British population genuinely being more affluent than they have been before. The welfare state is very successful in Britain and has really improved people's quality of life and has, has got rid of a lot of the worries and concerns that people might have had day to day, you know, Un- unemployment is very low and if you do lose your job there's a there's a good system of state benefits you've got a good system of healthcare education is in place and education is increasingly trying to kind of um, open up so you have the robbins report and things like this at the early 60s which is trying to make university education accessible to more and more people and i think that is a context where people are much more willing to engage with kind of big questions about the country's future and perhaps where concerns about the country are much less to do with like material problems which do do start to creep in by the end of the 60s where their government spending kind of is cut and this sort of thing but at this at this moment when Wilson is elected I think you know the concerns around Britain are much more to do with well Britain's losing an empire what what's the what's Britain's future where are we going next rather than concerns being about kind of individual affluence and this sort of thing. Do you think that the role of Prime Minister at this point is comparable to what we now understand the role to be? I actually think it is because I think Wilson's a pretty modern Prime Minister in that sense. His cabinet looks a little bit different to ours. Some of the ministers are different. Um, you know, he, he's governing at a different time. Um, and I think that maybe one of the differences between then and now is that the unions are much more powerful in the 1960s than they are now. And so Wilson, certainly as prime minister, and particularly as a Labour prime minister, obviously, I think has much more of a sense that he ne- that the, the trade unions are like part of the political system that he needs to work with and engage with. So his when he's thinking about economic policies, Wilson really has to think like, what will the unions do? How will the unions respond to this? Which is not really a concern for contemporary prime ministers. But I think in lots of other ways, yes, it is actually very comparable. He ha- he has a kind of modern attitude to the state um, and a, a modern attitude to what his role is. Even starting to have a little bit of that kind of media media role. He does some television spots and things like this, and his his kind of his Yorkshire accent comes across quite well with the with the electorate, for example. So e- even in that sort of sense of of the modern prime minister being a kind of individual celebrity figure, I think Wilson's maybe starting to get in that direction. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think his absolute commitment towards social reform is really is, is really interesting. And, and in a way, the fact that this happens in this kind of raft of measures all at once is, I think, a really interesting lesson that you don't necessarily have to go quietly and softly and carefully with these things. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Are there two or three episodes that you think define his tenure or that you think were particularly important? So this, it's interesting, I think, because I think... Really, there are these moments around social reforms. So the the, the decriminalisation of abortion, the partial limited decriminalisation of homosexuality, which which obviously um is 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 not kind of there's not there's not equal rights for for gay people, but you know for the first time it's not illegal uh, since eighteen eighty five, um, and the abolition of the death penalty for murder, and also kind of things here as well. So um the removing um, of uh, theatre censorship and things like this as well, which contributes to a sense of um, increasing sense that things like satire, for example, are are, are possible and that politicians become fair game for that. Um, so those kind of social reforms. Um, for me as a historian, I'm always very interested in the creation of the Ministry for Overseas Development, which is set up in 1964 with Barbara Castle as its first leader. This is the first time that there is a British government department which is dedicated to overseas aid and development that is sort of disconnected from empire so it clearly has lots and lots of imperial legacies and and they they they're clearly dealing at this point with colonies as well as ex-colonies and countries that have never been part of the british empire so it it does it's not that it doesn't it has lots and lots of imperial kind of legacies embedded within it but i think it is a really important moment where britain starts to think about kind of aid and development policies for the first time outside the context of colonial development, which had been much more to do with kind of colonial, the exploitation of colonial resources and things like this. And that's really closely connected to Wilson as a, as a person because he had written books about, the, he, he, he wrote a book about the necessity of um, eradicating world poverty, for example, and trying to eradicate global inequalities and things like this. And then maybe the creation of the Open University, both in the way that he sort of puts that in the hands of Jenny Lee, who is a really interesting figure and I think is probably the best, the, the most suitable figure to bring about the creation of the OU. So he sort of identifies a, a really important figure to kind of lead it. But also I think, you know, the creation of the OU is really important in terms of what it says about education um, and its accessibility to ordinary people. The OU is set up with the idea that sort of the lab technician will be able to go to the OU and, and become the scientist by getting his science degree. Um, it becomes really a, a place, a lot of um, women who had sort of dropped out of the education system to get married and have children, then kind of go back into it. And the OU becomes almost like a kind of housewives university. Um, and I think that's really 
kind of emblematic of, of Wilson's contribution. I think what's interesting about this story as well is there's some really big figures here, Barbara Castle, Roy Jenkins, Jenny Lee, who are all huge, important people in their own right. Do you think it says something about Wilson that he was able to attract these really sort of big thinkers, I suppose? I think so. And then, you know, one of, I think Wilson's cabinet has all these figures in who we know, right? Like all of these really, yeah, very, very important Labour Party politicians. I mean, one of his one of his problems is is then keeping them all in check um, and managing the relationship between them, and that becomes more and more difficult for him. I think, but I think it's also just a really exciting time for the Labour Party. I think the nineteen sixties is a really interesting moment. It's a sort of a generation of politicians who had either kind of got their first taste of politics in the nineteen forty five government. A lot of these people were elected for the first time in the nineteen forty five landslide and are now kind of twenty years later at the height of their political careers, like working for Wilson. Um, and then you have kind of younger politicians coming through at this point as well who are just entering politics in maybe nineteen sixty six and and who are then going to kind of go through. So I think it's a it's a really interesting moment for Labour generally, which is partly why so many of these figures are now people that we still recognise historically. What were Wilson's strengths and weaknesses as Prime Minister? So I think his strengths are, well, I'll start with his weaknesses, actually. He's, he's always been, it's, it's, there's always been a kind of sense about him that he does not have very strong, I think this is really interesting, actually. There's, there's often a sense about him that he doesn't have particularly strong guiding ideological principles. Um, to the extent that a, a book was published about Wilson a few years ago called, called The Unprincipled Prime Minister? Question mark. Um, and there's been a sense that he's sort of very, um, you know, he sort of will change allegiances quickly if he needs to in order to kind of get into power, for example, says so the you know the moment when when Labour's kind of split into camps and he kind of moves between them and this sort of thing. Even things like the creation of all of these kind of social reforms that are brought in, there's the sense that actually, you know, he doesn't have that much active role in it himself. He kind of steps back and Roy Jenkins does it. Abortion, for example, is legalised not even because of a Labour Party politician, but because David Steele, who is a, um, a, a Liberal, is the person who introduces the legislation for that. So, you know, I think Wilson's critics would say, well, you know, how much does he really have to do with any of this? Um, how much is he, you know, does he really even believe in these things? How, how much is he really kind of engaged? And I think you could kind of counter that by saying, firstly, I think really importantly, he creates a space where this stuff can be brought about. He, he creates a, a space where this legislation can happen. And also, I, I don't think he's unprincipled at all. I, I think he has very strong principles, as I say, this kind of um, religious upbringing and his kind of development of his political ideas. I think he doesn't necessarily care a great deal about some of these individual issues as individual issues. But I think he is governed generally by a concern for for the marginalised and the desire that the Labour Party should be on the side of the people who are less powerful in society. And as you mentioned, he unexpectedly lost in 1970. I mean, how unexpected was that? So I think probably not that unexpected, which is which is a sort of interesting thing, given that he has a really good election victory in 1966. So to go from having a good victory to, to not it not being that much of a surprise that you lose four years later is quite, quite dramatic. Um, Partly the relationship with the unions had really fallen apart by this point um, because of the leaking of Barbara Castle's document in place of strife, which had been going to bring about some kind of legislation which would have controlled the unions and brought about kind of uh, limits on their power in some ways. And so that's really problematic. Um, So the number of strikes have been gradually increasing throughout the 1960s and it becomes kind of associated with that. Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech in 1968 had been condemned by both Labour and the Conservatives, 
But a lot of people have posited that potentially that Powell speech, despite the fact that the the Conservative Party as as a party had sort of criticised it, it signalled to the electorate that the Conservative Party had a different attitude to race than Labour did, or that some Conservative politicians did. And potentially this is maybe the start of the break of the social democratic consensus, that there starts to be a a sense in 1970 that actually perhaps these two parties do differ on this key issue um, and that the British electorate decided that the Conservative Party approach to this was more in line with what they wanted. Um, And so that might also be another reason to kind of explain that. Uh, the, the Labour Party had brought in two race relations acts under Wilson, which should also be mentioned as achievements in 1965 and 1968. Uh, and it is possible that the British uh, British kind of electorate was not actually that happy with the idea of race relations acts and with the idea of kind of trying to outlaw discrimination against people of colour. And that that maybe is partly why they vote for um, Edward Heath's Conservative Party. That's a really interesting reading of that particular moment because there had been all these sort of social reforms and then potentially it sounds like the public just weren't that on board in this moment almost. It's definitely I think the case that so you get with the rise of of this these kind of social reforms you know you also get the rise of figures like Mary Whitehouse um, who is, is very critical of this you get backlash from from the kind of concept from uh, small c conservative religious figures um, who don't want these things to be brought about, you know, and things like the availability of the contraceptive pill in the 1960s, for example, is very alarming to quite a lot of, of groups who see this as the sign of kind of moral decline. And the sort of sense of the silent major- majority, which is a term you more often hear in, in kind of connection with the, the United States in this period, but the idea that actually there are people in Britain who see the permissive society very much as a bad thing. They see permissive very much as a, a word that they don't want to be associated with. You know, Roy Jenkins himself said, you know, people talk about this as the permissive society and I prefer to think of it as the civilised society, that things like the death penalty actually are not things we should hang on to because we think they ha- they sort of keep society in check, but they're, they're, they're sort of relics of a bygone age. But I think it's definitely true that there are people in Britain in the 60s who think that these Labour Party reforms are really problematic in terms of their sort of moral signals in society. If you could ask uh, Wilson a question, what would you ask? I think I'd really want to grill him on his principles because there is this idea that he is quote unquote an unprincipled uh, prime minister. So I think I'd really want to know, like, actually, what does he think about things like abortion reform? What does he think about the legalisation of homosexuality? How does he feel about um, getting rid of the death penalty like all of this stuff that as historians we often talk about oh he just he created a space in which these things could happen I think I'd want to really pin him down on what he actually felt about them and, and whether he thought they, these were a good thing or not do you think he's a slightly elusive figure I think he is which is funny because he's not undocumented like he's he's, he's left loads of you know he's left vast quantities of private private papers and this sort of thing but I think in a way he's sort of he's you sort of have have Wilson and and Heath and and this kind of you know all all of the politicians who come before Thatcher in a way just get ever so slightly eclipsed I think in terms of their personal you know they're all on really when it comes down to it you have sort of twenty years of fairly affable 
fairly fairly re- you know sort of fairly reasonable seeming fairly affable white middle class men as prime ministers right for like two decades after the second world war and, and then thatcher comes in and and is very different and, and and sort of shifts our understanding of what it means to be a prime minister and perhaps this means that people like wilson as individuals get ever so slightly our ability to engage with them gets ever so slightly lost or they, they don't grab the imagination perhaps in the same way and do you think there are lessons here in our stories here that uh, we should take more note of in 2021. I mean, I think you know, I I think his absolute commitment towards social reform is really is is really interesting, and and in a way, the fact that this happens in this kind of raft of measures all at once is, I think, a really interesting lesson that you don't necessarily have to go quietly and softly and carefully with these things. Um, and actually, quite a lot of these reforms happen in advance of public opinion shifting. So you know the. The Labour Party gets rid of the death penalty before the British public, before there is a majority in support of that, right? They they do it, and then the assumption is that British public opinion will catch up. And, and the same with the legalisation of homosexuality to some extent, the same with the legalisation of abortion. Like, if you think these things are right, you should bring them in and then work on winning people over to the thing that's happened. And I think there's a there's a that's that's quite an interesting lesson for politicians today who perhaps are a little bit more concerned with desperately trying to focus group everything and shape everything and and trying to sort of respond to public opinion whereas i think the wilson government in many ways is is sort of setting out what they think should happen and bringing about reform and then you worry about public opinion later or sometimes you know lose lose the next election but at least then you've you've done the things you set out to do you've made the changes that you wanted to make <laughs> Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tomorrow, Ayanna Thompson will be joining us to discuss her new book on the history of blackface. Mm-hmm.